The word of God from Revelation. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the tribes, from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell in the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you. If you would remain standing just a moment longer as we pray for God's uh, spirit to help us. Uh, Lord... We give you all of who we are and want all of who you are. We want your righteousness and holiness. We want your spirit to renew us. Lord, this morning, prepare our hearts to understand these mysterious words and strengthen us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Ronnie, one of the pastors here. And um, if you're new, you'll that was quite a passage to walk into. <laughs> Over the last several uh, months, I guess, we've been studying this mysterious book of Revelation. And what I want to do today, we're kind of at the halfway mark is I just want to take a few moments and extend the sermon to review a little bit. And here's why. If you 
If you come from a church background where every image is interpreted literally as if it's like some event that's tied to some future thing that's going to happen, you're going to feel really uncomfortable with my approach. Or let me say it this way. If your understanding of the book of Revelation comes from maybe like the Left Behind series, it's kind of a popular, it's really kind of taken over the imagination of the broader evangelical world. If that's your understanding, you'll be really uncomfortable with my approach. If you grew up maybe in a more fundamentalist tradition watching those creepy videos with fire and warnings, and I know there are a few of you, you might be comforted by my approach, but it'll be confusing. So I want to tell you about this on-ramp, this ancient historic reformed view of understanding the book. First, let me say that I do not, as you have noticed, interpret the book of Revelation literally. Now, don't hear what I didn't say. I take the Bible very seriously. I fully affirm the Bible as the word of God. In fact, what I'm arguing is that I'm indeed actually taking the Bible more seriously than a person who might uncritically accept a sort of left-behind methodology. See, the book of Revelation was written in a certain kind of genre, namely, and we've talked about this, this Jewish apocalyptic literature. And this genre is very mysterious, but it was a very legitimate and attested way of speaking in a two people in a culture that communicated, you know, it communicated these truths uh, about reality in a way that made sense to them. Uh, the way I would describe this genre is similar to how we use parables. So, for example, parables are true. They describe something that is true in reality, but we don't understand parables literally, Right? Like when Jesus talks about the lost sheep, he's not talking about sheep. <laughs> and to insist that he is talking about sheep is to not take the Bible seriously, right? Because he's talking about people. So the book of Revelation is talking about true things, but to interpret the text literally and to insist it as such is to actually distort the truth of its message. And so... In my opinion, the book of Revelation, to interpret it literally is ironically not taking it seriously. And so our job as readers and listeners is to understand the author's intent, understand the genre of literature in which the author selected to communicate these truths, and then cooperate with the authorial communicative approach, and then just to trust the author who is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this is important to understand because we, as you just heard, we're looking at chapter 11, which tells us about these two really important characters, these two witnesses. So are these two witnesses in chapter 11 describing these two mysterious prophets who are going to appear in Jerusalem right before the return of Jesus? No. The two witnesses are a symbol of the entire church of which you and I belong. These two characters are going to teach us about ourselves 
and about our purpose. And we're also going to learn about our enemy. So in the book of Revelation, John describes a spiritual reality through a very sophisticated complex of images and metaphors and symbols. And when those symbols are put together, a story emerges. And that story is meant to shape us, to give us hope, and to renew our loyalty to Jesus. And don't we need help in those areas? I mean, don't we need hope? Don't we need to renew our loyalty to Jesus? Well, how do we get it? Although the the book of Revelation is notoriously complicated, there is something that is very simple. In this book, the good guys are good and the bad guys are bad. Like good and bad in the book of Revelation is very black and white. Now, our world, it's much more complicated, right? In our world, the good guys are sometimes bad and the bad guys are sometimes good. And so this clarity in the book of Revelation is at times kind of um, hard to accept. And also, we need, to, we need help to understand that, that the battle that God is waging is against evil, <laughs> against real evil that you see when, you know, as it's a little bit more clear in Revelation than it is in our world. And the idea is by looking upon this cosmic battle, we're going to begin to see ourselves as participants in this cosmic struggle. That's the idea. And so as a result, the idea is that our lives take on new significance. Like our daily obedience, like our choices and the sacrifices that we make, our lives matter. And the story of Revelation shows us how our lives have an implication for this cosmic unseen battle. And that's what we're going to learn from these two witnesses Together, these two witnesses represent the church, and they are powerful. And at the same time, as we just read, the enemy is equally powerful. And why is this relevant? Well, answering that question is the whole purpose of my sermon this morning. First, note-takers, we're going to look at the power of the witnesses, and then we're going to look at the power of the enemy. So let's begin point one, these powerful witnesses. And let me begin by explaining... Uh, where our text, chapter 11, is situated. Again, a little bit of review. So after chapters 4 and 5, we see the lamb on his throne. He's governing all of human history. And then immediately afterwards, in chapter 6, we see that cycle of seven seals, right? The scroll with the seven seals. We see those seven seals being broken. And we, we said that those seven seals represent history being unfolded until Christ returns. Between, if you'll remember, the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there was that interlude of the 144,000 people. God's army. Y'all remember that? They were being sealed and protected from the final judgment. Now, that was our sermon last week, if you'll remember. Well, after the seventh seal, John describes now a new cycle. Now, this time it is a cycle of seven trumpets. This also depicts God unfolding history, but this time through a slightly, th- a slightly different angle. So trumpets are used to announce and to warn, right? That would be the imagery. The trumpets are announcing a warning uh, of the contents of this scroll. 
Again, just like with the seals, between the sixth and seventh trumpet, we have another interlude. And it's a description, our text this morning, of these two witnesses. And so the metaphor of the uh, of army as the people of God is now giving way to the metaphor of the two witnesses, okay? These witnesses now represent the people of God, and that's our text for today. So there's two witnesses. The question we have is why two? According to Mosaic law, in order to testify against crimes of a person, Two witnesses are required. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So, the, the number two is to suggest that their testimony is true. And these two witnesses, according to verse 4 in your text, looks there, are called two olive trees and two lampstands. Now, we already learned back in chapter 1, remember our very first sermon, that the lampstands are not lampstands. They represent, and they're symbols of the church. Now, as for the olive trees, now that image is actually borrowed from the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Let me read it for you. Zechariah says, And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord. So these are two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now that language, anointed ones, represents those who have this endless supply of the Lord's provision. And that detail is going to become important very soon. So the two witnesses then are told to measure the temple, right? The temple, as we've learned, represents the immediate presence of God. But they are told not to measure the outer courts because they will be ravaged by the enemies of God. Look at there, verse 2, 4. 42 months. And at the same time, the two witnesses, verse 3, are told to prophesy for 1,260 days and clothed in sackcloth. All right. Bible math time here. All right. 42 months is 3.5 years. 3.5 years is half of seven years. So seven as we know, is the metaphor for the full expanse of time, right? You see the seven days of creation. You see the the seven seals represents all of human history, right? So the 3.5 years means that the devastation against God's people will not last forever. It has an end point. So while the attack against God's people will last 3.5 years or 42 months, the two witnesses at the same time will be prophesying against them for 1,260 days or 42 months or 3.5 years. So the church is speaking against it for the duration of the conflict. They're parallel. So at the same time, the enemies of God are attacking. These two witnesses are testifying against them, hoping to bring about repentance, right? To bring about change. 
And these witnesses are powerful. Like when attacked, verse 5, fire pours from their mouth. Just like Elijah, right? In the Old Testament, calling down fire. And they also, look at verse 6, they have the power of Moses. Look, it says, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over waters to turn them into blood, right? Just like Moses, right? The plagues of Egypt to strike the earth with every kind of plague as, they, as often as they desire. So these guys are tough. They have the power to save through their prophetic message. But at the same time, they have the power to punish. They bring God's judgment upon those who hate God. Jesus will use the language of keys of the kingdom. They have the keys of the kingdom. And here's what I want you to understand. All of this violent imagery of judgment and execution against those outside of the church, and not just in this chapter, but really in the whole book of Revelation, it's meant to provoke and induce repentance. Listen, judicial judgment alone is not enough to lead someone to repent. Judgment alone does not convey God's gracious willingness to forgive those who repent, who are tender towards him. And that's how come it, the detail of the two witnesses wearing sackcloth is so important. There's a, there's a grief about them, a tenderness about them. So let me illustrate this with a different story in the Bible. You'll know the story of Jonah, right? Jonah is not about a big fish. It just isn't. It takes up three verses. It's about judgment and repentance. So Jonah goes to Nineveh, remember? And he says in chapter 3, he says, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, right? Judgment. And because of that promise of judgment, Notice how the people respond. I'll read it for you. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And they all changed, and Nineveh was spared. It didn't happen. That's how I want you to understand this violent imagery in this book. It's powerful precisely because it can induce and provoke our repentance. But as I mentioned earlier, a promise of judgment is not enough. And do you know what makes these witnesses powerful? It's not their ability to spit out fire and, and cause plagues. Moses caused plagues in Egypt, but it did not bring about repentance. What makes these witnesses so powerful is that their message is unified by their willingness to give up power and to die. Look at verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Their testimony is validated by their death, their martyrdom. Their death, their willingness to die establishes their testimony. It makes people take them seriously. And look what happens in verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory 
to the God of heaven. So where the plagues of Moses failed, the death of the witnesses succeeded, and it provoked repentance. It awakened tenderness to God. Because let me interpret, y'all, that verse 13, because you're like, what? I don't see that. So in the Old Testament, when the prophets prophesied, at best, the Old Testament prophets, at best they were able to spare a tenth of the city. And let me just give you one example from Amos chapter 5. In Amos, he says, thus says the Lord, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. That which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. So 90% died, 10% lived. That's Old Testament. But the witnesses we're seeing here in chapter 11 are supremely more powerful. For when they prophesied and died on behalf of the Lord, 10% of the people died, but 90% lived. Right? Verse 13, only a tenth of the city fell and gave glory to God of heaven. And here's the point. We, the church, are supposed to see ourselves as these two witnesses. When we proclaim Jesus with our lips, but don't follow up that testimony with our willingness to give up everything for him, no one takes us seriously. But when people who believe and validate their faith with lives that incarnate their loyalty to Jesus, the slain lamb, and give and die to themselves, then our witness becomes immensely powerful. And see, the problem with the church, and listen to me because I'm including myself, the problem is, is that we're living very small lives. Our lives do not validate anything or inspire anyone. We don't make sacrifices anymore. When, when someone hurts us, we just give up on them. I mean, there, there are as many grudges inside the church as there are outside the church. When our lives get hard, we give up. We don't want to be interrupted. We don't want to die. We can barely make it to church on Sundays because it interrupts the control that we have over our schedules. There's very little difference between our lives and the lives of our neighbors. Of course our neighbors don't care about Jesus because he's not making a difference in how we live. I mean, I'm overstating it for sure. But there are a few people, right, who make sacrifices, but largely that's not the case, right? We're, we're not more generous or sacrificial than the rest of Denver, our lives aren't inspiring. But here's what this text shows us. If we will give ourselves fully to Jesus, if the church will be a powerful witness by the beauty of its sacrifice, then people will notice. Why? Because most people are living small lives and they are searching, family. They are searching for something worth dying for. And that's what makes us powerful. We are powerful, not because we have power, but rather because we're willing to give up power. We have something worth dying for. And so we're invited as the church to, to stop living selfish lives. And so let us live beautifully sacrificial lives that testify to Jesus, because that 
is when we are incredibly powerful and will make a difference. So that's our first point. But what about a powerful enemy? Let us consider the enemy because he's super powerful. So in verse 7, we're introduced to a beast. Look there at verse 7. It says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So this beast is powerful precisely because he can kill these two witnesses who were pretty tough in their own right. So after the beast slays these two witnesses, the text tells us that their bodies, look there in verse 8, lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now, to understand the true power of the enemy, we actually need to think about the symbolism of the great city where the bodies lie. So three cities are offered as a metaphor. You have Sodom, Egypt, it's not really a city, it's more like a region, and then the city where the Lord was crucified, which is Jerusalem. So with Sodom, you know, most people know the famous story of Sodom and Gomorrah cited in Genesis 19. So centuries after that event, the city became a a symbol for lewd sensuality and sin. Egypt, likewise, had a reputation because of the events of Exodus. It came to be understood as a symbol of of oppression and injustice, especially against the people of God. And then lastly, you have Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, in the first century, was known as a place of spiritual and moral decay, but all hidden under a veneer of religion. And to kind of understand how John is using these cities— to shape our understanding of the power of the enemy, uh, you'd have to, you could think about it like this. If, um, if you asked me, you said, hey, what, um, whatever happened to John Doe? And I said, well, let's just say he's laid waste in Las Vegas and Amsterdam and Rio de Janeiro. Like, if I said that, you'd know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Because of the reputation of the cities. That, that is how these metaphors worked for the original audience. These symbols meant something very specific to the audience. And so for us to appreciate how powerful this beast is, we need to take a closer look at these cities because they're still relevant for modern Denverites today. So I mentioned earlier already, Sodom is equated, right, with deviant sensuality. And that image is actually quite prophetic for our times but I should say that the, the sort of sexual world of the first century and the original audience was so um, even beyond us that it would make us blush, all right? So they're not prudes. But even presently, we know sex is incredibly powerful and that the enemy is still using it to tear us apart and to seduce us away from God. Well, how so? Well, there's a lot of ways. Perhaps the most uh, prevalent conversation is the conversation of the sin of um, same-sex attraction. Uh, and listen, um, we, we need to talk about this. Because, like, on one hand, like, the church is, like, extremely, like, judgy and mean and harsh towards people who have, who's, who struggle with same-sex attraction. And, and we're, we're just, like, so mean to them and so terrible 
and they don't feel safe or in, our, in our churches, and they don't feel their own dignity. And then on the other hand, the church, if they're not making, committing that sin, on the other side, they're just like, it's not a sin at all. It's just like, whatever. God wants you to be happy. Just you do you. And we just discard the clear teachings of the scriptures. So let's do a third way. Like those brothers and sisters struggle with same-sex struggle, how about they feel the dignity of their worth and feel a loving challenge from the scriptures that speak life to them? That's what, that's what I'm going for. It's like this third way. So same-sex attraction is a sin. It is. There's no doubt. But the root of the sin of homosexuality is the same root of the sin of heterosexuality and its deviancy. So let me say it again. The root is the same for both homosexuality and heterosexuality. Let me explain. So our society has taught us that sex is merely or simply a product of our biology, like evolutionary biology. We're taught that sex should be seen in terms of natural, just biological appetites. And because that is actually the predominant view, people assume that there's nothing spiritual about it. And therefore, we shouldn't restrict it with any religious biases, right? Keep God out of our bedroom, we might say, something like that. So if, some, if, if sex is something merely biological, then we must let people have sex according to their biology. And if anyone tries to restrict sex, then you're just denying them the right to be happy. You just don't want them to be happy. So if you are convinced that your biology says that you are same-sex attracted, then in order to be happy, you have to pursue that same-sex appetite, like because your happiness depends on it. Or with heterosexuals, if sex is just a biological appetite, then you should be granted the right to sleep with people and decouple and recouple according to how you feel in that moment and your, your appetite. Or maybe even pornography. It's just, it's just an appetite. What are we doing here? You know, something like that. Those expressions... Uh, are viewed as outlets for natural appetites. But in both scenarios, intimacy is viewed as an instrument of being authentic to your biology and then therefore being an instrument of being happy and personally fulfilled. The problem is the Bible completely disagrees. Sex is never de depicted as an act for personal gratification or personal happiness. And the Bible has no problems in restricting sex because it teaches that your happiness and your fulfillment is not connected to it at all. And so whether you're same-sex attracted or if you're single or if you had an accident that damages your sexual organs— your right to happiness is not at stake at all. It's not in danger. Why? Because your happiness is exclusively tied to Jesus and nothing else. And when sex is elevated to a means of personal fulfillment, it creates all kinds of havoc, even in a marriage. And you're really replacing Jesus. Listen, sex is powerful, it is, and it, in that moment of intimacy, even if it's with a stranger, you feel known and accepted. I mean, that, that's why the enemy uses it, because it's so powerful. But you must remember that that role is reserved for Jesus. 
So you can see how the city, right, Sodom in this case, can replace Jesus. And you can see how we would unwittingly become more loyal to our sort of appetites rather than Jesus. It's powerful. And it is seducing people away from Jesus. Let me move to Egypt, which is our next symbol. Um, Egypt represents oppression. Here's one quick example. I think I'll just do this one fast uh, of how Christians are giving in to oppression as I see it. I'm trying to think about what, how this might make sense for modern Denverites. Um, if you are a Christian in the academic world, and we have a lot of you who are, uh, you are labeled anti-intellectual. Right? There is an immense amount of pressure from the academy or from the intelligentsia to go along with current scholarship in order to sort of fit in. So, for instance, many PhDs, and I know this because I've talked to you about it, many PhDs have to hide their religious commitments in order to be accepted by their colleagues. Christians are caricatured and labeled as being regressive thinkers, and thus uh, they are considered an obstacle to progress. They are accused of being against human rights and things like that. And what this has done is it's created this upper story, lower story dichotomy. And we've talked about this in a church-wide discipleship. But like they would say Christian thinking is upper story. It's mythological, it's purely religious and spiritual, and therefore has no place in the lower story or in the marketplace of ideas where the real world is lived. And as a result, many people seeking professional approval will depart from their faith because peer acceptance is very compelling and seductive. And so that's another power that the beast will use in that city. One more. Uh, this is the third symbol, and, and, and it's to explore the meaning of Jerusalem. Because, and now listen, because if you've like, if your adrenaline got like pumping in my first one, because like we, you know, we don't talk about that a lot. I want your your adrenaline to pump on this one. Because this is actually, in my estimation, the most powerful aspect of the evening. It is more dangerous than Sodom and Egypt. And the text even hints at it when it describes Jerusalem as the place where the Lord was crucified in verse 8. Jerusalem was supposed to be a beacon of light. It's supposed to show the path to God for the nations. Guess what happens? It's the city that actually kills the Savior of the world. It was not people who are addicted to pornography who killed Jesus. It's not prostitutes who killed Jesus. Pontius Pilate himself was a pagan who was hesitant to carry out the execution of Jesus. Who killed Jesus? It was religious people who killed Jesus. And who are you and me? You and I. We are religious people. And what does that mean? We need to listen, be warned. We must be careful. Moralism, legalism, false gospels are more dangerous and more damaging to the gospel than licentiousness. Have you ever noticed that Jesus is extremely compassionate with like prostitutes and addicts while he is extremely harsh against religious people? A false gospel and false teachers have a way of seducing people away from Jesus unlike any other sin. 
That's what Jerusalem represents. When I lived in Puerto Rico, um, I would go to the University of Puerto Rico um, to kind of get your brain around UPR. It's similar to what I would describe like Cal Berkeley or like Kent State. These are like what I might call historically liberal schools. Um, so UPR is in that tradition. Um, they, when I would go there, the students who hate Christianity and the ones who can articulate um, their atheistic beliefs are all the ones who were reared in Catholic schools or evangelical schools, right? So they were raised with religion, and it made them extremely antagonistic. Um, the kids who grew up in secular environments, like they weren't Christians, but they weren't aggressive. They weren't hateful towards Christianity. It was the ones who were reared in those private settings. The most dangerous people in Denver, look at me, the most dangerous people in Denver are pastors. Not SSA, not liberals or whatever, it's pastors. Well, don't get me wrong, both are sinners, but religious people have more power to suppress the gospel because they purport to speak on God's behalf. Teaching a false gospel is like this wicked vaccination. And everyone in Denver has this vaccination. And when they hear the true gospel, they're very resistant towards it. False teachers have inoculated the people. And now the true gospel has lost its wonder and beauty. Religious people armed with a false gospel have more power to destroy this country than anyone else. You know what this tells me? Be careful. You know how like children of pastors have the reputation of being like rebellious and you know cynical, you know, pastors' kids. You know why? Because they grow up seeing their fathers as hypocrites, <laughs> right? Like here I am telling you how to be holy, and my kids are like, whatever, you know. And it affects their view of Jesus. And so pastors don't repent. They always pretend to have all the answers to everything. Please pray for my children. Right? And there's no humility. So instead of loving Jesus, right, the children of pastors grow up hating Jesus or being afraid of him. That's, that is a metaphor of what religion can do. And so let us all humbly acknowledge this real danger. These two witnesses were killed by Sodom and Egypt in Jerusalem, the same city that killed the Son of God. The witness of the church can be killed by sensual sin, oppression, but worst of all, religion. Okay, this has been a long one. Let me finish. This is important. This is a little bit more. So I divided up this, this passage looking at the true power of the witnesses and then the true power of the enemy. But this text hints at one more thing. It hints at the true power of God. So this city was attacked for 3.5 years, and these witnesses prophesied for 3.5 years. And then the witnesses were killed, and they were dead for 3.5 days. And then they were resurrected. I saw that, right? Do you know why they were resurrected on the third day? It's because Jesus himself was resurrected on the third day. And while the witnesses were dead, the people mocked them. The witnesses were dead, and people celebrated their death. 
They were left out on the streets. But the enemy underestimated the Lord. I mean, who has the power over death? Who, who can take death and reverse it? No one, absolutely no one has that kind of power except the Lord himself. Do you want to be connected to that kind of resurrection power? Do you want to be connected to that kind of power? Then give up power. This is why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 will say this. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I even count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Like, look at your life. Remember, Revelation is all, it's like it's trying to shape us. Like, look at your life and offer it. I mean, offer every bit of you to the Lord. Don't allow anything to give you an, an identity except Jesus. And if we will do that as a church, then God will transform us into powerful witnesses to an unbelieving world of which we love. Like we love our neighbors. We, we feel their dignity. We love them. We want something for them. This chapter shows that God is grieving over all that, the sort of corruption of this world, but he is determined to rescue and restore it. First, he did it through the death, the faithful death of the lamb. And now he's doing it through the faithful death of the lamb's followers, the church. And so may we die to ourselves every day for the sake of others. Amen. Amen.